Impact over intentions. A faculty member told me I was brave for admitting I was the first in my family to go to college. I don't understand Freeze why. Brave and common. I spent my whole life having to ask permission to celebrate my holidays. As a college student, I often felt that I needed to justify how religious I was in order to have the luxury to have the day off on my major holidays, something that no one is expected to do for majority group holidays. Invisible like and nebulous. When the moving truck showed up at our new home in Davidson, an older white woman with a child in a stroller stopped, waited for us to come back outside from inside the house, and barked at us without so much as a simple hello, moving out or moving in. I have control over when my class does and doesn't meet, but in class, my job becomes harder for getting to I had a professor say that she could tell English wasn't my first language from my essay. A black man walked into our campus office. Another student worker greeted him and said, Are you the new football coach? You could see on his face he just wanted to sigh. He said, No, I'm a new professor. Today, we were made aware of our hypervisibility and undesirability. We are here to put the microscope to the microphone with our podcast. So let's talk about microaggressions. The term microaggressions was first coined by African-American psychiatrist and Harvard professor Chester Middlebrook Pierce, who defined microaggressions as a subtle, standing, and often automatic and nonverbal put-downs directed towards people of color, often unconsciously. According to Daryl Wing Sue and Lisa Beth Sponierman in the 2020 second edition of their book, Microaggressions in Everyday Life, while early theorizing focused solely on racial microaggressions, they can be expressed toward any marginalized group member and are typically linked to racism, sexism, genderism, heterosexism, classism, and ableism. The study of microaggressions has expanded recently to include other forms of oppression and accompanying microaggressions such as trans, genderqueer, religious, and intersectional microaggressions. Micro refers to the interpersonal, micro-level context of the act, and aggressions refers to the insults, invalidations, and assaults that may manifest as verbal or nonverbal behaviors that cause indirect, social, and relational forms of harm, such as exclusion, with or without intentions to do so. I once overheard a conversation in which a white man wondered aloud about the role and place of white men in academia as the future unfolds. I thought to myself, seriously? You are not a minority or an endangered species. You are not outnumbered or even close to being outnumbered. You still make upwards of 70% of the professoriate. Not only that, but whiteness is embedded in our systems and institutions. It's so normalized that you don't even see it. Microaggressions are verbal and nonverbal interpersonal exchanges in which a perpetrator causes harm to a target, whether intended or unintended. These brief and commonplace indignities communicate hostile, derogatory, and negative slights to the target. Microaggressions value the target's perception and identifying harm, as perpetrators often are unaware that they've engaged in an exchange that demeans the target impact over intentions. So let's get started. So once again, thank you guys for joining us today, Dr. McQuinn and Dahlia. This podcast is going to be centered around Jewish studies. And I just want to reiterate that this is a platform for you guys to speak your voices and speak whatever's on your mind. Let the conversation flow wherever we go. Before we start any dialogue, let's go ahead and begin this podcast by establishing the vocabulary that we will use throughout the podcast. Often when our society thinks about microaggressions, we solely think about racial discrimination and that really overshadows 
other discriminations experienced by other marginalized groups and different intersectionalities between those groups. So how do these different terms look varied in like marginalized religions? I see sometimes, specifically in an American context where people are really interested in talking about race, racial language creeps into conversations about non-majority religious identities. So really like anybody who is not a Christian in the United States. And there's a whole host of discussions and debates and what have you about whiteness and proximity to power and monotheistic religions and so on and so forth. But what I will say with regard to Jewish people in the United States, largely being from of European origin, East European origin, Jewish people in the United States have had access to white privilege, but at the same time have been marginalized in specific ways or specific instances throughout American history and in different contexts in the North or in the South. And so things depend, as most matrices of oppression do, on specific socioeconomic factors, housing policy, and even grocery stores. And it really just depends on how secular somebody is, their own self-identification, their engagement with a world outside of their religious community. During this podcast, we'll be largely talking about people who are secularized in the United States. But I don't want to mix up any terms and say, well, this will apply to everybody on like a range of orthodoxy to complete atheism. When in reality, like the people who go to Davidson are not the most from Jews, as you will. One of the things we talked about before this is recognizing that the majority of Jews in America are categorized as white. For example, it's really important to recognize that Jews in America receive the privileges, basically, of white privilege and have for a long time have had access to places of power for much longer than potentially other marginalized groups. At the same time, Jews being in this space where Adalia was suggesting it's both a religious group, but also a sort of social cultural group. And even among Jews, there's discussions about is Jewishness solely religious? Is it also ethnic? Is it what else? All of these vectors play a role in the kinds of microaggressions that Jews experience. So some of the things that we'll talk about today might seem very familiar to other kinds of microaggressions that you've talked about in the podcast. For example, things based on how you look, what kinds of jobs you're supposed to do, what kinds of sort of characteristics people identify with your group, so various kinds of sort of group stereotypes. And then others will be more specifically religious and related to specific experiences or ways in which Jews are sort of marginalized from mainstream America because of their sort of religious outsider status. Yes, thank you for that. So do you guys want to begin by talking about your experience about being Jewish, both in the context of being Jewish in America and society and your Davidson experiences with being Jewish? So I grew up in the South. I had fairly different experiences of being Jewish in two different Southern contexts. So as a small child in Houston, in Texas, which is a larger city, and I went to a fairly diverse school. And so my experience of being Jewish was essentially to imagine myself, and this sounds very sort of like ideally multicultural, as just one, one of a variety of different people. And in fact, I felt lucky compared to some of my other classmates that I had something particular to bring to the rest of my schoolmates, for example, holiday traditions and things like this. It changed very much when I moved to South Carolina, and I moved to 
Charleston when I was nine, and my experience there came to be sort of almost overtaken by the experience basically of microaggressions. There were very few Jewish students in my grade at school. And when I was in high school, in fact, I was the only Jewish girl in my grade. I think there were four Jewish boys, which is a relatively isolating experience. A lot of jokes, a lot of assumptions about what a Jewish person should look like or act like, what kinds of characteristics your family should have, other things like this, these kinds of assumptions. In fact, this is in part what led me to be interested in Jewish studies was the experience of becoming totally disinterested in essentially being Jewish through the course of my time living in Charleston. I actually had a completely different experience in the sense that I grew up in New York City, which I like to call, and many other people like to call, the capital of the diaspora, essentially. I grew up in a large Russophone Jewish family. My mother doesn't speak Russian, but my dad's family came from the Soviet Union in the 80s and 90s. And so you could say that I perhaps belong to like an ethnic subgroup of the American Jewish community in New York. And so actually my experiences as the child of immigrants, my mom's also not from the States, was very different from a lot of the established American Jewish families that I was interacting with at school or even at the temple that we went to for a short period of time. And they in turn recognized me as othered within the community. We mostly hung out with other Russian Jewish families and basically networked in that way. So coming to Davidson, I didn't expect people to know anything about Jewishness necessarily, but I didn't know exactly what that would feel like. The difference almost between cognitively knowing and subjectively feeling to be othered in that specific way, even though I had had other experiences in New York feeling othered or marginalized or in the minority. It was coming to Davidson and being in a majority Christian environment and religiously Christian environment that was very different for me. And frankly, engaging with people who saw Jews as people from the Old Testament that <laughs> really opened my eyes to some of the different things here. Yeah, I've had that experience too. The Old Testament assumption. <laughs> right. You know Moses personally? Right. Somebody once asked me if I was a Hebrew and I was like, I don't even know how to answer that question really. <laughs> And I know we'll talk about specific microaggressions, but I really did not expect the microaggressions I would experience at Davidson or hear my friends experiencing to be, again, motivated from a religious standpoint. When you hear about a modern anti-Semitism, you hear about the reanimation of these old tropes of globalism, of they're everywhere and nowhere, so on and so forth. But I never expected to hear stories about whether Jews were culpable in the crucifixion of Christ. But like that was a real debate on a friend of mine's freshman hall. These are things I would never know as a non-Jewish person on Davidson, you know. So kind of continuing this on-campus talk, what does it mean to be a Jewish student on campus or a Jewish professor on campus and your representation within the curriculum? So kind of starting to go into like these Jewish studies. Well, the push for Jewish studies, we called it in the spring of 2019, I think, in the aftermath of the neo-Nazi doxing that fall, was really to find institutional support for Jewish students. We make up about 5% of the population. We hover above and below kind of variable of the year. And during the, the Twitter Nazi event, the critical lack that I felt personally as a Jewish student on campus was the lack of not just Jewish adults, but specifically people who were aware of or knowledgeable about debates and issues of Jewish identity in this kind of modern moment. And specifically with regard to the far right or even multiculturalism and so on and so forth. 
in fact, the push for Jewish studies was not even specifically about the Nazis, though that was also bad, but really about the conversations that we were having afterwards with other Davidson students who agreed the Nazis were bad, but clearly had no critical apparatus, again, to talk about Jews and race and oppression and power and so on and so forth. And so in the wake of these Nazis tweeting things like, again, this was in the wake of the Pittsburgh shooting. Like, I don't care if all these kikes die in a synagogue and then a picture of a gas chamber, someone turning around in a meeting and saying to me, you know, Jews are white, they don't know anything about oppression. And so basically like the dissonance in those experiences and saying, well, okay, like clearly there's something, I need some support and my community needs some support. And looking around and seeing that we don't have many Jewish faculty who are tenured, first of all, and second of all, those who are perhaps not really like up on these conversations and can't act as supports in the way that we need them to be. Here's an institutional need and we should advocate for ourselves. So in the spring, that's kind of the journey that we went on. Yeah, I mean, something that Dahlia said that I think hints at sort of one of the classic minority group binds, which is that as a faculty member, for example, you shouldn't necessarily be expected to be, and you are probably not necessarily an expert on, for example, dealing with issues of anti-Semitism or anything else about the Jewish experience just because you're Jewish. And it's a different thing, for example, to have representation in the faculty matters, but if you're not representing basically Jewish issues in the curriculum or expertise on Jewish issues, for the Davidson public, then you may not have, in fact, be able to come to the table in the kinds of moments that Dahlia is describing with expertise that can help navigate these kinds of conversations. And I think it's really important to be able to have a space in the curriculum for both, for example, Jewish students to see their history culture represented as a sort of legitimate area of study, as well as for non-Jewish students who may be interested or, for example, are trying to potentially understand the kinds of things that happen on campus. Hopefully, you know, those things don't happen again, but other things in the public sphere or even the relationship between different kinds of academic subfields. So, well, there's a lot of overlapping terms between Jewish studies and other basically anti-racist discourses and conversations about human rights that all have to do with post-Holocaust world and even development of human rights law and things like this to be able to sort of understand how these issues link together. And there's a big piece missing if you don't have Jewish studies, I think. I was a freshman when the neo-Nazi Twitter incident happened. And that following semester, I took a Dialogues on Race and Racism class. And there were two Jewish students there. And I remember the talks and the conversations we had about the lack of space for Jewish students and how this incident highlighted the lack of space. So backtracking a little bit to the initiation slash the interest of this, this interest for Jewish studies sprouted through experiences growing up. Would you guys say that there were point when you guys began to see concrete moves being made on campus towards Jewish studies or when you started seeing that notable tangible spaces? Well, <laughs> we didn't have much of a plan beyond we're going to circulate a petition. Well, the other thing is the school didn't seem to have much of a response to the Nazis beyond just we need to heal, we need to move on. Oh, this was terrible. But there was a distinct lack of closure on the part of Jewish students, specifically because a lot of the conversations that we had following the Nazis themselves were so unproductive, frankly. 
So the genesis of the Jewish studies project or what have you was really born at the beginning of the next semester so that hopefully in the future there would be a tenure track position for somebody who was specifically interested in Jewish history or social studies that had some sort of like anthropology or sociology, sociological study of Jewishness in the United States or so on and so forth in the South possibly. And this was done with the support of faculty who are here now like Dr. Denham or Dr. Plank, but when things started picking up after our petition, which I believe, if I remember correctly, 1,200 people signed from the college community, we had successive meetings with different department chairs asking them if they would welcome a tenure track position in such and such, whatever, specializing in Jewishness or Jewish studies or what have you. But I mean, it was just because we were persistent, we got a lot of no's and I had a lot of difficult meetings where it was clear that university politics were gonna get in the way no matter what. And I think that's just true of whatever sort of institutional initiative that you take. But by the end of that semester, we had the commitment of four visiting contracts that kind of just happened, some of which happened because we collaborated with the departments. Others happened just because we were making so much noise and getting so much attention that some departments just put in their, you know, hiring ads, oh, and if you have an interest in Jewish studies, that's cool too. And then ended up hiring the candidates who saw that and said, oh, well, that's my research specialty. So I may as well apply. And so in that sense, I think just making as much noise as possible was really the strategy that worked. It's very impressive to mobilize and end up with an influx of new faculty, all with research specializations in Jewish studies. And I think it's fair to say that we came into it really excited about that as a group. And I think within like, you know, a month we had met together to figure out what we can do, but there's only so much that you can really do as three to four people with nearly guaranteed limited time frame and access and as such access to sort of institutional longevity and resources. And Davidson is very generous in supporting sort of individualized faculty initiatives for short-term faculty, but it's nigh on impossible to make the kinds of steps towards making something actually concrete from a position of impermanence, essentially, right? So the idea of sort of concrete moves is a little bit like building a scaffolding without a building and not getting any tools to actually this is not to say that hiring visiting assistant professors to teach classes on jewish studies is a not worthwhile endeavor because of course we had students fill these classes and students proved to be interested in these classes but it's only a jumping off point for something else if there is continual investment. And unfortunately, that's something that's not clear is going to happen. The other thing I'll say that frustrated me, I actually went abroad after that spring, just because that's kind of how my Davidson timeline ended up. But something that frustrated me was I was seeing people say like, Jewish studies is over, let's move on to X thing. And I thought to myself, these are visiting contracts, Jewish studies will not be over in two years when these contracts are up. And this is just a cycle of institutional memory, but what I will say is that that was frustrating to me. And I'm not sure if the people who have the money to create a tenure track position, for instance, be they donors or the faculty hiring committees are necessarily aware of exactly how valuable that would be to Jewish students and like the suspension of Jewish life at Davidson. 
Yeah, it seems like they're just putting a band-aid over the wound without actually tending the wound. So you guys touched on it, but do you guys want to talk a little bit more on how this support has developed over time slash disappeared over time? I know this is a common trend we've been seeing at Davidson and how big events happen and then Davidson is quick to respond in a message of healing and moving forward without actually making any progress that will last longer than let's say you know a year or two. So would you guys like to talk a little bit about how the support has developed over time? Well I will also say that we as Jewish students on campus have become a lot more aware of our positionality with regard to the rest of the student body. So before the neo-Nazis, I'd say that we used to be called Hillel. We were pretty kind of internally facing. We did a lot of events specifically for Jewish students. We weren't really interested in interfacing with anybody else. And that's in part because that's the model for religious organizations on campus. And we were very much a religious cultural organization more so than any sort of affinity space. At least that's the model that I came in with as a freshman. I want to believe that since the fall of 2018, we've become a lot more resilient and have done a lot of the necessary coalition work to show up for other student groups and advocate for, be it this ascension of Project 87 or the expansion of Project 87, the Asian American Initiative, other things that have grown out of that moment. But at the same time, like, I also recognize that institutional memory is short and it's very possible that in two years it'll be a different JSU and people will be interested in their Passover dinner and their Shabbats and that's kind of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just means that the Jewish community will have less of an impact on Davidson. And the fact that we don't have that faculty support to say like, there's this speaker coming, we're going to do a movie night, means that we have one less support outside of the group. So it just becomes very student directed, which again is fine, but there are limitations to that. I mean, I think the hiring of these video faculty has at least proven that students are interested in Jewish studies classes, and the students who are interested in Jewish studies classes aren't just Jews. Colleges and universities move slowly, and ideally that will translate into thinking more seriously about the place of Jewish studies courses and a permanent place at Davidson College. I was pretty explicit with some students who wrote me, for example, about my Holocaust class in the fall, wrote me and said, I am interested in your Holocaust class, but at the same time as the Writing 101, I was thinking of tanking. Do you offer this every year? And I just said, I literally cannot guarantee that this class will ever be taught again at Davidson College. So if you want to take a class on the Holocaust, you have to take it now. And I will leave that decision up to you. I tried to be honest with students about what the opportunities are for Jewish studies. I hope that that's not the case and there will be Holocaust classes in addition to, of course, that's another thing that the Jewish experience is not just the Holocaust, but in addition to a variety of other Jewish experience related topics down the line at Davidson College. But there's a limited degree that we can guarantee that there can be somebody who can continue to support them in their interest in this topic. I can also add that sometimes hiring constraints and the availability of tenure track positions puts departments in a, a position of feeling as if they have to choose between specialized topics. And of course, 
minority or marginalized populations, even if they are significant global populations, end up being the choices that departments have to make. So do you hire somebody in or do you ask for a line in South Asian history or Asian American history or Jewish history? And these are basically the choices that are being made are between various marginalized populations rather than the majority topics. So these things have all played a role in making it difficult to see what the future of Jewish studies will look like at Davidson College. So moving on to the next question, in the Davidson Microaggressions Project, we've talked a lot about intersectionalities and the important discussions surrounding it and discovering different areas and different microaggressions that these different intersectionalities of marginalized groups experience. Like Dolly was saying earlier, she identifies as Jewish, but is also the daughter of immigrants. So specifically in the U.S., a lot of Jewish people either identify or reflect as white. I know we touched upon this at the beginning, but how is privilege reflected throughout the Jewish community, would you guys say? I mean, it's a great question because there are so many, <laughs> so many privileges to work your way down the list. A big one is wealth, frankly. There are many really wealthy Jewish communities in the U.S. and specifically in the synagogue politics of New York City, I can tell you that the place that you belong to or the religious community that you belong to is often an indicator of how wealthy you are. And there are some synagogues that are inaccessible. And for many people, synagogues in general are completely inaccessible because of membership costs. That is one thing I can say. Another thing is that redlining has not affected Jewish communities in the same way that it has black and brown communities in the United States, or even state-sanctioned Islamophobia and profiling has not affected Jews, who are also sometimes very visible. But at the same time, some people in Jewish communal politics like to use some kind of questionable terminology around white functioning, Jews are conditionally white, and that whiteness can be taken away. In the majority of cases, that's not true. With the Twitter Nazis, for instance, that felt somewhat true as far as Jewish students' safety being implicitly threatened with pictures of cross burnings. And you get the idea. I don't need to necessarily explain all the tweets, but I don't want to call it identity limbo in some senses, but within the racial logic of the United States, it really can be because Jews have profited so much from their proximity to whiteness and their assimilation in the United States. And in fact, their phenotypical whiteness in some cases what I can say for one Jewish community will not be the same for Syrian Jews or for Ethiopian Jews or for Jewish people like my mother who are mixed race, but phenotypically not white. So she has been in a synagogue where somebody has asked her if she is lost or not when she's on her way to go back to services. And that itself is a racism within the Jewish community that is only now beginning to be spoken about. Yeah, I mean, just building off what Dahlia said, when I think about this question, I think about my great-grandparents who came from a town that's today in Belarus to Birmingham, Alabama in the 20s. And Birmingham, Alabama was a better place to be a Jew than where they lived close to the Russian border. And in America, we think about Birmingham and Alabama in the 1920s, and we have severe racism and Jim Crow. And in the laws of Jim Crow, my great-grandparents were white. 
and that really matters. I was just listening to a roundtable, and they were talking about how Coca-Cola <laughs> became kosher. And kosher, for those of our listeners who don't know, is a set of dietary regulations that religious Jews abide by. It has to get certified to be kosher. And one of the possible reasons that Coca-Cola made Coke kosher was because this rabbi had access to people who, so he knew somebody who worked at Coca-Cola. So there was a Jewish lawyer who worked for Coca-Cola. And he, through the lawyer, managed to have a conversation with somebody about Coca-Cola and kosher. And so like this kind of access in the 30s, I think it was, proximity to positions of power to even have the conversation about can Coca-Cola be religiously acceptable for Jews in 1930s in America is something that I think that most other minority or marginalized groups did not have access to that early in the US. I guess kind of continuing that question, how do you see privilege on campus, both as a student or a professor? Well, I mean, privilege on campus means that as the president of the Jewish Students' Union, sometimes I have to say to the people in the Jewish Students' Union, hey, we need to show up to this conversation. Even if you feel like it doesn't affect you, we need to show up for so-and-so, who has been a good ally to us. And some of the people in the organization not necessarily seeing the necessity of that, because frankly, they are white on campus. And of course, they have these really alienating experiences, again, as I referenced before, like these conversations about the, the crucifixion of Christ. But at the same time, it's not within this larger pattern of familial oppression for them and not necessarily an experience that feels like it's part of a pattern, but rather maybe an aberrant. And so I would say that's a function of privilege here. Yeah, I mean, one thing that basic function of privilege that affects people who aren't Christian in the U.S. is holidays, actually. In New York, you probably don't have to do this, but growing up in the South, you know, I had to ask permission to get out of school to celebrate a holiday if it fell on a school day. Later, for a variety of reasons, like when I was in my PhD in Chicago, I didn't have to do that because they start later, so it was a moot point for the major holidays. But there's this feeling that if you're going to request to leave school for a holiday, that you need to live up to a certain standard of religiosity. I think that people who celebrate the mainstream religion that is, people who are Christian don't have to feel the pressure to do it all because your holidays will be off and you can do whatever you like with those days. That's just the way that the school year is scheduled. And I don't know that people will even think about that if there isn't somebody to pose the question of, should we consider making this day off? There was this suggestion on the faculty discussion about giving breaks for students during the pandemic because everyone is exhausted by Zoom. It was an intense fall. They condensed the semester so that maybe students should have some day off for your classes in the syllabus. And I put the point forward that perhaps there are non-Christian holidays that are well-placed in the semester to offer your students off so that students who may be Jewish or Muslim don't have to ask. I mean, another aspect of some of the Jewish activism that came out of the Nazis was the Jewish History Project at Davidson. And one of the first tenured professors who happened to be Jewish told us was about like a prayer before a faculty meeting and being asked to say the prayer and feeling uncomfortable and not necessarily knowing whether it should be an ecumenical prayer or like, or a specifically Christian prayer or what have you, and then kind of opting out altogether. And something that we don't necessarily talk about at Davidson is the Presbyterian heritage of the school and how that has guided, again, things like the schedule, 
but also some of our rituals here. Yeah, these are things that people who follow mainstream religion do not really think about and how, even at Davidson, how a lot of our things are centered around the Presbyterian calendar and those type of holidays. So how do you guys see the Jewish community reflected in the media? You know, these representations may not be something non-Jewish people really notice or pay attention to, but how is that representation seen in the media? For a long time, I think that Jews in the media were represented as pretty white. Let's think about these sort of TV shows and comedies, even like Friends and Seinfeld, where the characters are obviously Jewish, but yet they do nothing Jewish. And I think this is changing somewhat, but these are the dominant American culture references. I don't know if there's a single episode where Monica and Ross Geller do anything Jewish whatsoever on Friends. And Seinfeld, too, is very Jewish, but also they never talk about being Jewish like in any way, shape, or form, really. That's one thing that I think about when I think about Jews being reflected in the media. Dolly, do you have some more contemporary thoughts on that? Broad City would probably be another example of more contemporary comedy where two Jews, like these people read as extremely Jewish. And they also take place in New York, which is its own conversation, but they also don't do anything specifically Jewish, maybe in every single episode. What I will say, though, is that with something like Unorthodox, which is a show about essentially a Satmar community, kind of like an international Satmar community, we'll say, which is a Hasidic kind of ultra-Orthodox way of practicing Judaism that involves a completely different social and religious code. The fact that those people, and I'm talking about for, again, more secular or people who are not necessarily aware of exactly what I'm talking about, those Jews who wear those black hats, that's kind of what I'm referencing. The fact that those people are the most visible Jewish Jews, so to speak, means that people can get confused as to who is Jewish and who is not. There was a student at Davidson who asked the JSU leadership, what it was like when we went and we put on our black hats and went to pray. And it took me a second because I was like, what black hat? What? Like, what are you talking about? Because ultimately the Judaism that I practice or subscribe to or think about as belonging to me is not Lubavitch, like Satmar, ultra-Orthodox in any general way. And so what does it mean when the most visible members of your quote-unquote community ultimately have nothing to do with you? And especially people at Davidson who grew up in monocultural communities, really not interfacing with anybody who wasn't Christian, who grew up with very little cultural fluency with regard to Jews and Jewishness. I do wonder if like, sometimes they think, oh, we don't have any Jews at Davidson because we don't have anybody who is visibly Jewish in that way. Nobody who is Shomer Shabbat, nobody who keeps kosher, because also that would be nearly impossible on campus. You cannot keep kosher at Davidson because our kitchens are not kosher. You cannot keep Shomer Shabbat because there is no infrastructure for that. That is to say, follow Shabbat observances, like not turning on lights, not paying for things, not tearing packages open. And what does it mean for the Jewish community at Davidson, really, to be invisible in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately the media reflects a bind that potentially Jews are put into, which is either you're visible by these visual religious markers that Dahlia was mentioning, or you have representations of Jews who are ultimately just like everybody else. And it leaves very difficult to have conversations about ways in which Jews are marginalized. For example, like experiences that Jews might have with stereotyping about what kinds of careers Jews have or should do, or 
what Jewish mothers are like or about Jews being cheap or what Jews are supposed to look like. Because beyond how they're supposed to dress, there are also a series of assumptions about what Jews are supposed to look like. And then these kinds of things, limbo of some kind, fall into a vague space where it's not clear where to even have those conversations and this fractured depiction in the media of either this orthodoxy or on the other side people who don't seem to reflect on their jewishness or engage with their jewishness at all but yet are supposed to be jewish is potentially related to the fact that there's this kind of empty space in the middle yeah, and what I will say, I mean, all of our words are kind of imprecise. Like the idea of white Jews is really only applicable in the United States and North America, broadly speaking. But someone who went to Davidson and who is now the Jewish mother of our community often reminds us that white Jews, quote unquote, can have racialized experiences as well. Where like someone can talk about how big your nose is or how curly your hair is and ask you where you're from, right? Like, oh, do you have Greek family is something that a friend of mine was always asked because there was something off about him, as someone put it. And racialized discourses can be transposed onto quote-unquote ethnic white people. This is a privilege in and of itself. A lot of the microaggressions that I experienced when I was growing up were about the revelation that I was Jewish. So the fact that I had been able to not be instantly identifiable as Jewish became a microaggression in itself. And the ability to not read in any particular way is, of course, a privilege in and of itself. So... For example, I would get a lot of, no, you're not, you can't be Jewish type things. You don't look Jewish, but your last name is this type comments when people found out that I was Jewish. There's an interesting sort of bind in the fact that the many of the microaggressions that I experienced growing up are also linked to the fact that I had a position of relative privilege where theoretically, if I so chose, I could withhold that information and not experience that microaggression at all. And that privilege may not apply to everybody, like Dahlia was saying. You read as more Jewish because of your level of religiosity and how you dress, that kind of, you wouldn't even have that privilege to be able to sort of prepare yourself or not, or avoid a microaggression if you so felt like it. Yeah, I'll even say that. Again, my name reads as ethnic, but people are not really sure exactly what's going on. So people will assume that I'm, and when they see me, and because I maybe look darker, they'll assume I'm Israeli, which I always find kind of funny, like those Jews from elsewhere. Like you can't be American because you don't, you don't necessarily look like what I assume an American Jew to look like. So clearly, like you're from the Middle East, which is its own discourse that we haven't even gotten into. Yeah, thank you guys for going into microaggressions. That's actually what the upcoming question was going to be about. So one of the big problems with microaggression experiences is that often it is hard to address them in the moment, you know, right when they occur. What are some microaggressions that you guys have experienced and what are ways that you guys have responded to those microaggressions, both from the perspective of the microaggressee and the microaggressor? So I was just describing microaggressions based on people who basically didn't believe who I was based on how I looked. And one experience that haunts me actually, ironically, is me doing more or less the exact same thing to somebody else. When I was in the 10th grade, I met this guy who told me he was a Mormon and I knew his family was from Colombia, the country, and I thought he was playing a joke on me basically like trying to embarrass me. And so I said, no, you're not. 
And he said to me, yes, I am. And I said, no, you're not. And I said something like, you're from Colombia. And he was like, yeah, there are Mormons in Colombia. And I thought, oh. <laughs> and I think about this especially and in the context of the conversation, because this is both like religiously and based on the idea that I had this assumption that Mormons were all white people from Utah. And I assumed, because he wasn't a white person from Utah, that he couldn't possibly be a Mormon. And this is pretty much one of the most dominant forms of microaggression that I had, which was the people who I could tell by the way they responded, had assumptions about what I would look like if I was Jewish, were like seemingly surprised that I had managed to masquerade, like as, you know, they didn't know I was Jewish from the moment they met me and this kind of thing. And yet I had done so to someone else and different religious context, different person, but it had the same kind of assumptions about what this group of people would look like. Yeah, I'll also say that according to Halakha, which is like Jewish religious law, Judaism as like an identity or what have you is passed down through the mother. And so there's been kind of like an emergent conversation or maybe not emergent, but I've become hip to it recently about patrilineal Jews. So people who are Jewish through their father and not marginalizing them within the Jewish community. And I have a friend who identifies as Jewish, but is Jewish through his father. And it was something that I would rib him for a little bit because he would identify a lot with ethnic groups that his mom belonged to. In the same way that some people would assume that I was patrilineally Jewish when I would tell them that my mom was Indian and then ask me if I was going to do a patrilineal conversion, which I always thought to be really funny. He eventually said to me, listen, like this is not funny, like you're taking it too far. And it really does hurt me. And understanding that like, at least for me personally, as somebody who kind of has a, a dry sense of humor that, frankly, like the things that you make jokes about often resonate with people's actual traumatic experiences was something that I had to basically learn in maturing into a fully empathetic human being. And similarly to Dr. McQuinn, realizing that, oh, the same assumption that people made onto me, I was almost amplifying that onto this other person. Especially when people assumed that my mother, who, again, is Ashkenazi based on her family heritage, when people would see me and say, oh, but you're Sephardic, which would refer to Jews from Arabophone or Hispanophone countries, that's its own kind of othering or marginalizing in a sense. And realizing that, again, like I was kind of like repurposing this discourse onto this person was an important moment for me. Especially as I got older, I responded to microaggressions with a lot of hostile questions. Got very frustrated about the kinds of microaggressions that I would experience and the frequency with them. And I would respond to people with things like, oh, so what, I can't do this because I'm Jewish? I can't have holiday cookies because I'm Jewish? Because apparently this was a thing that happened to me. My mom liked to make Hanukkah cookies every year. And I had a classmate who thought that holiday cookies should be reserved just for Christmas. So this was one of the ways in which I responded to experiencing microaggressions was over time. And these were particularly with people I knew, and I knew well, actually, with hostile question asking in return. Personally, it got to the point where I would just laugh at people, where they'd ask me a question and I'd like giggle at them and thinking that they were asking a legitimate question to go, why is that? Like, did I offend you? Like, what's going on? And sometimes just a quick correction and saying like, oh no, actually, like, this is true and this is not, escapes you and you just think, well, like, this is ridiculous. It gets to a level of repetition that feels absurd because in the culture we live in, a lot of people make the same assumptions and therefore you have the same experiences over and over and over again.
And I would imagine this is a similar experience to many people who experience microaggressions, but the response to then getting upset or posing a hostile question in return that you frequently get is, geez, I was just joking. Why are you being so serious about this response was sort of the typical exchange in my experience about microaggressions. Yeah, one thing that we've been learning a lot about in the David's Microaggressions Project is how someone's intentions don't necessarily matter as much as their impact. Like you said, these comments were often made by like close friends who maybe did not mean for microaggression to come out the way it did, but that goes beyond the point of the impact that it created and the comments which were discriminatory. So going back to Davidson, can you guys talk about, well, I know this might be a little bit limited for you, Dr. McQuinn, but would you guys be willing to talk about some of the changes in your time that you've seen at Davidson, either regarding diversity, inclusion, etc., and how have these changes stayed over time, and how have these conversations shifted? What I will say is that, or at least what I've noticed since uprisings this summer, there's been a real push to, and there was before, but I think specifically now, to have a lot of workshops, learn the correct language, so on and so forth. And that's lovely, but at the same time, without addressing root causes or actually knowing what the words you're saying mean, like so-called political correctness feels empty. And I say this as like a non-white student and as a Jewish student, sometimes I wonder if people actually, people being faculty members, understand that their actions affect the whole college experiences that people will have by setting a tone or by acting in a certain way, for good and for bad. And after the Nazis, there was a push to recognize that Jewish students have had a specific, not necessarily role, but place at Davidson, considering how difficult it was for Jewish students to come and stay at Davidson and Jewish faculty members to be hired because of some of the religious requirements that were in the bylaws until the 70s and until the early 2000s. But I'm not sure how broad that conversation is as far as like its reach and how much people actually understand the specific history of Davidson as a Southern Christian school in the place of religious minorities here since really like the 80s. <laughs> I, you know, having spent a limited time at Davidson College, I have a pretty narrow range of things to talk about, I suppose. But I mean, the number of available classes in Jewish studies related topics increased sixfold over the course of a fairly limited period of time. And in fact, actually, my research is more or less about what sort of intensifying a conversation about a marginalized group in a relatively short period of time does for a community. And so I'd like to say that this will have an effect, not just, and of course, such effect could be limited by the students who are at Davidson College now, but the students who have taken, who will continue to take while they're available classes in Jewish history and anthropology and culture will carry what they've learned and those intersections into other classes. And I know students who have done this already, for example, being in my class and also a class on art and refugees, taking those two things and linking them together in not just in their mind, but sort of bridging those gaps in the classroom. So I'm hopeful that these links will continue to play out even after students, for example, are no longer in a particular Jewish studies class. Yeah, I really hope so as well. It just goes back to 
learning all these different things in different classes and then connecting the dots and seeing, like you said, the intersections between those. So now I want to kind of open the floor. I, I mean, I had this question for you, Dr. McQuinn, the why do you decide to leave Davidson? Feel free to answer that question right now, or this goes out to you, Dahlia, as well. Anything you guys would like to add? I mean, I was really excited about coming to Davidson, and I had some great experiences working with students at Davidson, in part because of the experiences that I had growing up in the South. And I felt like I graduated from high school and went to college and just didn't want to deal with microaggressions anymore. And fancy that. And so... I was not interested in doing anything Jewish whatsoever, but I also realized over time that my Jewish education had actually been relatively limited in the extent of what I had been taught. And I did a fair degree of outside of school Jewish activities. I went through confirmation, which is not really a thing that you really have to do in Judaism. And I was in my youth group and things like this. And still, I've had a sense of Jewish history being a history of persecution, and that was it, you know, pogroms and the Holocaust, and had these experiences of feeling isolated because of it. And then by fluke, I got to grad school and ended up in a Jewish history class and realized that there were so many things that I had missed and just didn't understand about the history, the culture of Jewishness in America and globally, just in general, that I didn't have any access to really when I was growing up. So it meant a lot to me to try and bring that to a place like Davidson College that didn't have that before. But it became pretty apparent to me pretty quickly that there was not significant investment. And I didn't necessarily think that it would turn into a permanent position for me, but I had hoped that there would be something permanent left at the end of this time. And it became apparent pretty quickly that was close to impossible for that to happen. In particular, we had a pandemic. We are facing continual reckonings with the history of racism in this country that are forcing many colleges and universities, rightly so, to reflect on the kinds of programming they have around Africana studies and Latin American studies and these kinds of things, these kinds of spaces. So those issues have came up since then. But even before that, it was clear to me that there were very few signs that I could identify that Davidson College was intending to turn this into a stepping stone into something permanent. And one of my fears of taking this job, you mentioned this earlier, was that I would be playing the role of a Band-Aid on a much larger problem. And I felt as if that was in fact the case. So I found an opportunity that allows me to focus on the building aspect of building something more stable, unfortunately in a different context. That's my story. As one of the students who advocated for the position to be created, that was our hope as well. If there were anything that would change Jewish life at Davidson, like I said before, it would be a tenure track position or a permanent position at the very least for someone who is interested in a critical history of Jews and Jewishness. So not the history of persecution and the tired old troops that do exist in Jewish studies, 
of a Jewishness that European Jewish populations who have fled persecution through the ages, but rather, again, like a critical understanding of Jewish culture as a hybrid identity in Europe and in the U.S., but alas. A student told me when they found out that I was leaving that they wrote their Why Davidson essay about a class that I was supposed to offer in the spring. And yes, they might have been able to take that class if I hadn't vacated my contract semester early. But same problem applies is that ideally students who are interested in learning about things at Davidson College can expect a relatively stable set of course offerings. And it's sad that a student can't expect to be offered the classes that address full range of the human experience looking at applying to Davidson College. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add, Dahlia? Something that I do love about Jewish life at Davidson is that there's nobody telling us what to do. It is truly like student-directed in a sense, and so there's no Hillel advisor telling us who we can invite to our Shabbat and who we can't, or which speakers we can have and who we can't. But and for that reason, it feels very scrappy and something that we have built on our own with the help of specific supports like the chaplain's office. But obviously there are drawbacks. In moments of crisis, there are very few people to turn to. And my hope is that that changes, but I don't have much else to say beyond just that's the state of affairs. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, let's hope that, like you guys said, that change keeps on coming and it's not just temporary, but it's seeing in the longevity of things. I mean, what I will say is that I think like a larger critique that you could make is that the reason why people maybe don't see the need for something like this is that Jewish studies as a field is very conservative and reactionary and has not, at least in my opinion, as like a young person who has not completed my BA, Jewish studies has not really, in the same way that Hillel as the student organization was not really interested in other conversations or other communities beyond just like we want to do our stuff for us, Jewish studies is not really as interdisciplinary as it could be or interested in these larger academic conversations. I think that is absolutely changing now with kind of like a younger generation of scholars coming up. But when people talk about how Africana studies or Black studies has changed the way they see the world, I'm not necessarily sure that's true of Jewish studies as a critical framework. At the same time, maybe it's true that in 10 years when Davidson makes its first tenure hire in Jewish studies that that person will be super cool and has been trained in diaspora aesthetics and influenced by Paul Gilroy and plenty of other important people. Jewish studies has been interdisciplinary in the sense that it's always relied on multiple disciplines. It has had a history of being rather insular, as in Jewish studies is about Jews who are identifiable by some institutional or group affiliation, for example, synagogue membership or participating in Jewish school, like things like this, whereas the reality is that doesn't actually reflect the world of contemporary American Jewry. And as such, it hasn't had lots of conversations that reach outside of Jewish scholars talking to Jewish scholars about Jews. But that is changing, especially in recent years. So... Yeah, when I said interdisciplinary, I didn't mean necessarily like, man, there's only Jewish history as much as I meant kind of maybe that cross-disciplinary yeah. conversation. So coming up on the final questions, do any of y'all have a class you would recommend, a book you guys would recommend, or any other form of educational material that our viewers can look up and join the conversation? 
A resource that has gained more popularity recently has been Jews for Racial and Economic Justice's Guide to Anti-Semitism. And if you're interested in how anti-Semitism and racism can go hand in hand almost or affect one another or amplify certain social tensions, that guide, which you can find online and it's free, breaks down the history of European anti-Semitism really well and its implications in the U.S. today. It's 40 pages long, very digestible. The Anti-Defamation League gives a lot of material, and the Anti-Defamation League does surveys on anti-Semitism globally and things like this. But I do think also there are some Jewish-specific publications, like the Forward, for example, that does short articles, and they do a lot of op-eds. And to get a lot of people to write in, for example, talking about their experience as Jews of color, as whether or not Jews are white, these different kinds of Jewish subgroups. So, for example, Sephardi Jews and Mizrahi Jews, like where they fit in the American conversation about race and coming at that from a number of different perspectives and looking at some of those could be helpful or useful because this is one thing that I suppose it's important to recognize is that Jews are in fact quite varied in and of themselves and have many different kinds of experiences. Once again, thank you guys for giving you guys your time. Hopefully you guys were able to talk about a lot of issues regarding Jewish studies that you guys have been wanting to get off your chest or just like spread the knowledge, you know, to many people that don't necessarily think about these different issues and microaggressions on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DMP podcast. Check out our website at www.davidsonmicroaggressionsproject.org and follow us on social media. Find us on Instagram at DC Microaggressions, on Twitter at DMP underscore Davidson, and follow our Facebook page, Davidson Microaggressions Project.